Good morning. It's good to be here this morning, to be able to worship together as the body of Christ, and to be able to share from the Word of God. I don't know about you, but every time I pull into that parking lot and I come here, I'm filled with a sense of joy. Um, I can only speak for myself. And the reason that I feel that way is because I am constantly reminding myself of where we were a year ago. A year ago, the idea of a church plant, the idea of something like this, it was just a thought. It was just a prayer. But soon after that, we were gathering in each other's homes, and we were praying, and we were studying the Word, and we were worshiping together, but we had a problem. There was nowhere to gather. There was no actual building to gather in. And I remember so vividly making all these cold calls. I was calling churches, I was calling fellowship halls, rec centers, trying to find a place that would let us come in. I was hoping for a Sunday evening or a Saturday evening, something. But then right before September, God provided. And now here we are. We're in this beautiful sanctuary on a Sunday morning, worshiping God together. But there's a thing about human nature and if you can understand this, it'll go a long way in your life. There's a thing about human nature that is so sad. And that's before you even take a moment to appreciate what God has done and what God has provided, we naturally start to worry and complain about the next thing. Before we even take a moment to say, thank you, God, for what you've done, we're already worried about the next thing. We're already worried about growth. Turn your Bibles with me to Acts 2. And to set the stage here in Acts 2, this is the nascent stage of the church. This is the origin story of the church, if you will. And here we have Peter, and he is answering these critics who are questioning the validity of the church. And the, and the first thing to notice is that this isn't the same Peter anymore. This isn't the Peter who denied Christ three times and then ran away. This is a different Peter altogether. He's a different man. He's bold. He's speaking with conviction. What does he say? Verse 22. We'll start there and we'll jump around. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. We go on to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he, David, himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at the right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is from Psalm 110. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. And he said, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Amen. Very powerful words. But what is conspicuously missing from Peter's message? There aren't any flashing lights. There aren't any large stages. There aren't any giveaways. And there aren't any words that tickle the ears. Instead, what is it? It is unadulterated gospel proclamation. There are church planters and church leaders all across the country and all across the world who hold so dearly to verse 41 because verse 41 says that 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. They hold on to that. I've even heard a pastor, a very famous pastor, say that if your church doesn't grow like this, then it's not of God. That's a lie. That's a lie. It's a bold-faced lie. And I can say that because of verse 46 and 47. Let's turn there. 46 and 47. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And listen to this. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It was not Peter who added to the church. It was the Lord who added to the church. Now let's follow this line of logic, right? If it's the Lord who adds to the number of the church, then it is the Lord who determines the size of the church, right? So if the Lord determines that the church will be 1,000 people, then we should say praise God and amen. And if the Lord determines that it will be 100, then we should do the same. And if the Lord determines that it will be 30, then we should praise God and thank him and serve him with gladness and thanksgiving. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with prudent planning, strategy, and outreach. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. According to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what we will do. But we have to remember this. It is not us who add to the number of the church. It is the Lord. And the danger is, the danger is when we think that it is man who adds to the church. Because when man adds to the church and not the Lord, what you end up getting is a church full of sinners and not repenters. And there's a big difference between those two things. Sinners and repenters. Sinners seek to glorify themselves Sinners seek to satisfy themselves. Repenters recognize who they are and who God is. And with every fiber of their being, they try to live lives that glorify God. So, we see what Peter is doing in Acts 2. What is the church doing? 
the believers in this infant church, what are they doing? Let's read verse 42 together. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The believers in the church devoted themselves to three things, and I hope with all my heart that we can embrace this as a church. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they devoted themselves to the word of God and to studying. Second Timothy says that all scripture is God-breathed and is good for teaching and reproof and correction. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to defend the hope that is within you. I ask you this morning, are you prepared to defend the hope that is within you? Are you prepared to defend what you believe in? Do you even know what you believe in? How often do we open the Bible and actually study it? How often do we read the scripture? And when we, when we get to a point where we don't understand something, and that will happen, and that's okay, and that's good, how often do we reach out for help? How often do we go to Bible study? First, they devoted themselves to the study of the word. Second, they devoted themselves to community. And this is something that I'm praying that I grow in grace with myself. Do not believe the lie of politicians and governments and cultures and so-called wise men who will tell you that it is perfectly okay and good to live in isolation. That it is a good thing to live behind a screen. It's not true. It's not true. We were not meant to live that way. We were meant to live as they did in Acts 2.42, together in community with our brothers and sisters. How often do we check on each other, not just because we need something, but purely out of a selfless heart, asking each other how we are doing? How's your study? How's your prayer? How can I help you? They devoted themselves to community. And finally, they devoted themselves to prayer to prayer. Now, over the past few weeks, I have been reading a lot about prayer, a lot, and I've come across some statistics that are just really sobering. You know, over the past 10 years in American evangelicalism, prayer has decreased something like 10%. That's huge. In addition to that, only 2% of people say that they are satisfied with their prayer life. Now I ask you, what would you attribute that to? Why would that be? I've read so many theories as to why that might be, but my opinion is that it is a combination of two things. Comfort, comfort, and a poor understanding of prayer altogether. When do people pray? When do people normally pray? It's when they need something. When their basic needs aren't being met, that's when they pray. So what happens in 2023 when you can sit on a couch under a big, giant, comfortable blanket, and you can eat takeout, and you can entertain yourself with a phone in your hand all night long? You don't need anything, so you don't pray. But 1 Thessalonians says that we should pray without ceasing. So how does that make sense? 
We're supposed to pray in the bad times and the good times without ceasing. It comes down to a poor understanding of prayer. So many think that the primary purpose of prayer is to bend God's will to our will. That we would bend his will to ours as if he were some sort of a cosmic genie at our disposal. But any actual reading of the scripture, any actual study of the scripture will demonstrate that in fact, the purpose of prayer is to bend our will to his. It is to bend your will to his will and that's why you would pray without ceasing. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we pray, O oh God, that by your Spirit you open our eyes to the truth of your word. May it make sense to us, may it be clear to us, Lord God, and may we use it in our lives. May we take it beyond these walls. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you most of all for your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, over the past few weeks, we have been in a sermon series within a sermon series where we have been studying the Lord's Prayer. And Pastor Billy has done a remarkable job in introducing us to the Lord's Prayer and going over the first few words. As we look at Matthew 6, in the verses that lead up to the Lord's Prayer, we notice that Jesus is admonishing hypocrites and Gentiles because of the way that they pray. He's saying that they're repetitious and they're babbling and essentially their prayers are, are meaningless. So Jesus then takes that and, and looks to his disciples and he says, this is how you should pray. Now notice he doesn't say, pray exactly these words. Because if he did that, what would end up happening? They'd be repetitious kind of defeat the purpose. So, instead, he says, this is how you should pray. In a sense, Jesus is providing us a framework of prayer. Now, I don't know if any of you have been lucky enough to ever take a tour of like an automotive factory, or if you've ever been able to see an assembly line on TV or on the internet, but it's a pretty amazing thing. And it starts with this frame they call it a chassis. It starts with a frame. It's just this metal frame with four wheels. And as it goes down the assembly line, the most amazing thing happens. All these machines start adding parts to it. And they add leather seats, and they add air conditioning, and they add a gear shifter, a steering wheel, fenders. And by the end of the assembly line, you have this beautiful car. But if you didn't have that frame, all you'd have is a pile of parts. What Jesus is telling us is that if your prayer doesn't have these core elements, then you're just saying a bunch of words. So he teaches us how to pray. For today's uh, focus, we're looking at verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now you notice I put the emphasis on your. It's a matter of pronouns. Pronouns. 
Now, when I say pronouns, some of your ears perk up, right? Because in our culture today, pronouns are all the rage. Pronouns. So if you're on a social networking site, or if you're on Facebook, or if you're on any of these things, all of a sudden now, you're able to put your pronoun into your profile. And you can put him, and her, and she, and them, and it, and, and all kinds of interesting things. Now, at first glance, we can look at that and call it ridiculous, right? We can call it clownish and foolish. But if you dig a little bit deeper under the surface, if you go deep, and you get down into the roots of it, and see where that kind of an idea sprouts from, it comes from an insatiable desire to bring attention and glory to self. That's what it's all about, self. Now let's do a thought experiment together, okay? Let's imagine that we went out onto the streets of Chalfont, the mean streets of Chalfont, and we brought someone in here. We brought a gentleman in here and we said, hey, sit right here in the front pew. And let's just say, for example, that he doesn't know a thing about God, nothing. He doesn't know anything about the Gospels, he doesn't know anything about the Bible, doesn't know the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, nothing. And we sit him down in the front pew, and we say, sir, there's a God in heaven who's really strong and really powerful, and he can do anything. Pray. Go. Do it. What do you think his prayer would sound like? Think about it. It would sound something like, God, if, if you're up there, um, just applied for a new job last week, if you could help me get that job, that would be great. And uh, well, my sister's kind of sick. If you, could, if you could help her get better, I'd be so appreciative of that. And that's it for now, I guess. Um, talk to you later. Now, on the surface, there is nothing wrong with praying those things. But what you will also notice is that there is nothing exclusively Christian about that prayer. There is nothing exclusively Christian about that prayer. You don't have to be a Christian to want those things. Nothing. It comes down to the pronouns. What would that gentleman not say? Think about it. What would he not say unless his eyes were open to the truth of the gospel? He would never say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a matter of pronouns. Your kingdom and not mine. Your will and not mine. Let's continue. Your kingdom come. Now, if you ever want to have a fruitful discussion about the kingdom of God, I would refer you to Pastor Thomas. You can talk to him about the kingdom of God all day long because for as long as I can remember, he has been preaching about the kingdom of God. I'm serious, as long as I can remember. And if you can, you know, describe his ministry in one phrase, it would be about the kingdom of God. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a blessing. In this context, what is meant by the kingdom of God? 
It is God's redemptive purpose. It is God's redemptive purpose. And we can look at the kingdom of God in different senses. First, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Verses 31 to 34. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Now here, Jesus is describing in kingdom terminology something that is in the future, right? He's not talking about something that is occurring right now. He's talking about something that is to come. And he's using kingdom terminology to do it. He's talking about separating sheep from goats. He's talking about a judgment. And we as believers in the church should have a glorious hope that we are counted on the right side. Makes sense. Now turn your Bibles with me to Luke 17. Luke 17. Verses 20 to 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So in the previous passage, we talk about the kingdom, and we're talking about things that are not yet, that are far away in the future. But here, Jesus is saying, the kingdom is not something you can point to. You can't say it's there or there. The kingdom is in your midst now. How do we make sense of something like this? Something that is here, but also not. Turn your Bibles one more time. Matthew 13 Verses 31 to 32. Matthew 13. And this is Jesus speaking. Speaking a parable. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Jesus divinely and in a genius type of way is able to explain complex things in these simple parables. He speaks of the kingdom of God, that it is a tiny little mustard seed, and that's how it starts. Now, we know that the mustard seed at that time was the smallest of all seeds. But when this tree came into full bloom, they said that it would be something like 15 feet high. That soldiers used to sit under these trees because they were sturdy and, and large. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, Jesus is speaking as if this mustard seed is growing, it is flourishing, it is getting bigger. The kingdom of God is here, but it's also not fully here. When Jesus ascended into heaven, how many followers did he have? Do we know? 
How many followers were there when Jesus ascended into heaven? About 120. How many are there today? Billions. Billions. So when we pray, your kingdom come, that's what we're praying. We're praying that this kingdom continue to spread to every corner of the globe. But hear me, this is very important. When we look at this culture and we see how desiccated it is and how disgusting it is and we point our finger, we have to make sure that when we pray, your kingdom come, we have to make sure that we start by saying, start with me. We don't want to point our finger only to realize that the kingdom of God has not taken root inside our own homes that the kingdom of God hasn't taken root in our own hearts. The kingdom of God. We read on, your will be done. Now when we talk about the will of God, we're talking about something, we're starting to venture into some complex theological territory. There are several wills of God. We know the sovereign will of God, This is God's eternal plan and purpose that cannot be thwarted, that cannot be destroyed, that cannot be uprooted. We know that Ephesians 1 says all things work according to the purpose of his will. We know that Jesus said in the Gospels that not a sparrow falls outside of his Father's will. Now we know, just by hearing that, we know that it is not his sovereign will that the Lord is referring to in the Lord's Prayer. We know that because the Lord is teaching us to pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which means, which means, the implication being, that his will is not being done on earth. So it can't be that will. So what will is it? Turn your Bibles with me to Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Matthew 7, Verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. I'll read that one line again. Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Now, this is a different kind of will. This is called the preceptive will. In other words, it's obedience to God's precepts, laws, his commands. Let your will be done. You know what's so interesting? When I think about David and Psalm 119, the the longest psalm in the Bible, and I think about one particular verse in Psalm 119 where David, who this psalm is attributed to, says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. What an interesting thing to say. Oh, how I love your law, I meditate on it day and night. Now, what do you think specifically David was loving so much? 
Do you think it was the epistles? Do you think it was the beautiful gospels? Do you think it was the Proverbs? You're shaking your head because you know that none of that was written yet, right? It's David. None of that stuff was written. So, so what, was he, what was he referring to when he said, I love your law, I meditate on it day and night? What was he referring to? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and some historians say Joshua and Judges. He loved the books that we barely even look at. What about those books did David love so much that he would meditate on it day and night? Why would he say that I love Leviticus? I love Deuteronomy. I love your law. Among many other reasons, there are three reasons why David loves the law. One, law restrains evil in a society. Now, you might watch the news, and you might say, this is just horrible. But can you imagine for a moment if there was no law at all? This whole place would be gone in a matter of days. David loves the law because it restrains evil in a society. But the second reason he loves the law is because it exposes him for who he actually is. It exposes his sinfulness. When David reads the Ten Commandments and he gets to, thou shalt not covet, and we all know the story of David, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. When he reads that, he's broken. He's broken because he recognizes how spiritually bankrupt he is. He recognizes how sinful and terrible he is, how he's not better than anybody else. David loves the law for a third reason. And that reason is that in recognizing his sinfulness, he recognizes how much he needs God. He recognizes his dependence on God, and that's why he meditates on it day and night, because it is a constant reminder of how much he needs God, of who he is and who God is. So when we pray, let your will be done, that's what we're praying. We're praying more and more, God, let your will be done. May, may more people's eyes be open to the truth of your word, and may more people submit themselves to your will. But once again, this is important, once again, we say, start with me. Start with me. May I submit to your will at my workplace. May I submit to your will as a father as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a child. May I submit to your will when all the doors are closed and no one else is around. May I submit to your will then. Now we know that this isn't easy, right? We sang today, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We do feel that, don't we? Paul says in Romans 7, who will save me from this wretched body of death? He is speaking of his flesh. So who do we turn to? Well, you can't turn to me. I fail all the time. 
And I can't turn to you, because you do the same. Who do we turn to? Turn your Bibles with me to Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 39 to 44. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And Bradley referenced this this morning. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here we have our Lord, this precious, spotless, perfect lamb in this garden with the cross looming. The cross is coming. And it speaks of this cup, and that cup represents judgment. And Jesus sees this cup, and he recognizes this agony, and he is going through an anguish that you and I will never have to, and also an anguish that you and I will never understand. And as he's going through this agony, this pain, this struggle, he still says, Not my will, but yours. He still says, not my will, but yours be done. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Hear this. The same Jesus who taught us how to pray, let your will be done, is the same Jesus who actually did it and did it perfectly, and never failed. And because of that, as the book of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our every need because he has been tempted in every way, and what? He never sinned. Paul in Romans 7 said, who will save me from this wretched body of death? The very next verse, I have been delivered by Christ Jesus. Oh, what a Savior we have. Let's pray. Lord, our Father, we thank you, God. We pray once again that you open our eyes to the truth of your scripture, that we might see it for what it is. It's everything. Lord, we pray, Father, that we submit to your will that we get the pronouns right, that it's your will and not ours, that it's your kingdom and not ours. 
Lord, we repent for all those times that we get it mixed up. We repent for all those times that we wander. But we thank you, God, that you are a great high priest, that Christ is our great high priest. We thank you. We worship you once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.